Good morning, Northbrook. We're going to be in Galatians today, Galatians chapter 1. So if you'd like to open your Bibles there, uh, you can open Galatians 1. We're going to be reading verses 1 to 5. Um, we're going to begin this morning with a study of the letter um, to the Galatians by Paul. And this is a book that um, some, some guys don't really want to preach from because uh, it can stir up trouble. And uh, I used to be a guy who loved to go where angels fear to tread. And I loved uh, the debate and the uh, arguing and the uh, controversy. And then something happened to me called old age. And now I don't like to argue anymore and I don't like to fight. And so on the one hand, something like Galatians is... uh, scary, but on the other hand, it's incredibly important to Paul. And and if you want to read a letter by Paul, where Paul gets cranked, this is the letter. Paul gets extremely upset in this letter, and he gets extremely direct in this letter. And his issue, well, we'll talk about the issue here in a little bit, but he he is going to get very upset. And actually, one of my favorite parts of the Bible is later on in this book where he um, says to the circumcisers, if you think circumcision makes you righteous before God, then just go cut the whole thing off because that will make you really righteous before God. And uh, that one always cracks me up because that's, that's Paul and uh, that's his attitude. So, and it's actually in the Bible. I'm not making that up. He really did say that. And um, uh, so we'll, we'll see how cranked Paul gets. But this morning, I want to just kind of do an overview of what's happening, why this letter is being written, and um, uh, what's at stake for the churches of Galatia. So we'll be reading beginning in verse 1 of chapter 1 down through verse 5. And you're welcome to follow along as I read aloud. Paul, an apostle, not from men nor through man, but through Jesus Christ and God the Father, who raised him from the dead, and all the brothers who are with me. To the churches of Galatia, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. At the, oh, sorry, we're going to keep saying the whoever is wise thing. I almost forgot it there, but it wasn't just for numbers. We're going to keep doing that. So whoever is wise, let him attend to these things. Let us consider the steadfast love of the Lord. At the heart of any long-term successful organization, be it a, a civic group, a nonprofit, college, or a Fortune 500 company, is that, uh, is that there has to be an understanding of that group's core values, that group's core beliefs, and its reason for existence. And it's not uncommon for a company which has flourished over the years making XYZ widgets to flounder and fail because it decided to expand for no really good reason uh, 
into manufacturing something that had nothing to do with its original mission. Companies are started most often not because the owner wants to make a lot of money. That does happen. But your average everyday company is started by a person who has a passion for what they do. And they do it well. And they want to serve people with whatever product they make or, or whatever product they sell. Colleges are started because someone had a passion to educate students in a particular way with a particular philosophy. But oftentimes these organizations fail and flounder because the company is bought out by another company or the founder of the company dies and it's passed on to um, an heir or it's taken over by someone who has been brought up but they see a business opportunity but have no understanding of the organization's culture and history. We spent 16 years at a college where when we went there they had 157 students and um, 30 some faculty and staff. 16 years later when we left they had over a thousand students on the main campus and we had probably that many around the world. And by the time we left, the college was almost unrecognizable for the reason, in relation to the reasons it was originally started. Key people were brought in to key positions. Growth became important, and money, therefore, became important. And any organization that begins to be driven by growth and money will eventually lose its original reason for existing. And that reality led to a strong push in the 90s for the development of mission statements. Some of you who have been in business and been around long enough remember all of a sudden all these books were coming out about mission statements. And you had to develop a statement. Consultants were coming in. Consultants have the best job in the world. They get to tell everybody else what to do and they take no responsibility for it and they make a lot of money when they walk away. That's one of the best jobs there is. But all the consultants were coming in and saying, you need a clear, concise statement of why you exist and what your goals and values are. So everybody started coming up with company ABC exists for and blah, 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 blah. And, and the employers, the owners started plastering it on the doors and cubicles and walls of the hallways, bathrooms, putting in the stalls. They were everywhere. They came out on the emails, letterhead, all their little pithy little statements of their mission statement. And the employees were told to read it, and you had, you know, little seminars on the mission statement. And these are what we believe in. And, and the, you know, in and of themselves, they're not bad. But the problem was nothing changed because the employers continued to make decisions that went against the mission statement. And the employees ignored it because they realized the employers ignored it. And pretty soon you've got a mission statement plastered everywhere that nobody really cares about. They just ignored it. And they went on doing their job in the way that they wanted to do it. And in some sense, 
That's what's happening in the churches of Galatia. It's, it's also what moved the Apostle Paul to write this letter in the attempt to correct the false beliefs and practices that were gaining followers within those churches. These churches, Paul had a special connection to them. They weren't just random, everyday churches that existed out there somewhere. They were churches that Paul personally had founded. God had used him and his ministry to see people come to know Christ and to see these small bands of people who were coming to know Christ begin to coalesce and form churches throughout the region of Galatia. But now, not so many years later, since that first missionary trip and Paul's work with these churches and seeing the the fruit of the gospel in their lives, not so much later, they're abandoning the teachings that led to their formation. They've lost touch with the values and beliefs upon which they were founded, the reasons they came together. And they've begun integrating what is false with what is true. And while they may have seen their actions as corrective, as people came in and say, yeah, the gospel is great, it's wonderful, it's transformative, it's true. You've got to remember that the law has always been important to God. Show me in the Bible where God said, we don't follow the law anymore. As a matter of fact, God refused to bless His people if they didn't keep the law. And God promised to bless His people if if they kept the law. And do you remember what God did the last time His people didn't keep the law? And who is this Paul guy anyway? He's some nutcase. He doesn't even know what he's about. He's an egghead. He can't relate to us. So we're not saying don't believe in Jesus, and we're not saying don't believe in the cross, and we're not saying don't believe in his resurrection. All we're saying is, is that good gospel people keep the law. And it starts with being circumcised. Because you can't be one of God's people if you are not marked by the sign of the covenant. And some of you right now might be sitting there thinking, huh, that makes a lot of sense. Some of you might be sitting there thinking, that's what I've always been taught. Kind of, like. So they, they weren't abandoning the gospel in their mind. They weren't abandoning this, this truth that Jesus Christ died for our sins, was buried and rose again according to the scriptures, and, and is alive and will reign over his people. They weren't abandoning that. They were just mixing in some other things. But the gospel was intended 
to sever an end in relation to God's people. And they may have seen their actions as corrective. But Paul in chapter 5 expresses the danger of their choices. Again, Paul is very direct in this letter. He is angry. When you read this letter, you need to hear an angry tone coming from Paul. Because these people are being led away from the cross. And these people are being led away from the gospel. And in chapter 5, Paul says, this is, the, this is your choice. If you want to put yourself back under the law, understand, quote, you are severed from Christ. It isn't that it's, it's okay. It's okay to keep the law and, and believe the gospel. It's okay to believe that God requires me to keep the law to please Him. It's not okay. You are choosing to sever yourself from Christ. That's Paul's statement, not mine. And you are walking away from grace. You are abandoning grace. That's Paul's statement, not mine. In reality, the stakes couldn't be higher for those who are called the disciples of Christ. It isn't just that you might have a little error mixed in. As long as you believe the gospel, all this other stuff doesn't matter. The stakes couldn't be higher. It's just like numbers. It's life and death. It's the gospel plus nothing or it's nothing. What I want us to do this morning is, remember back in the book of Numbers, you had that mental time machine that we went into for the first, uh, first couple weeks? And I was thinking last night of all the Doctor Who fans, and I've never watched that, but they, he has his phone booth, I think, and that likes some travel around in time, I think. I'm not sure. I'm, I'm totally out of touch, I know. But uh, if, that, if that works for you, whatever works for you, we're going to go back in a time machine, so to speak, to the city of Jerusalem to the early 30s, the early 30s of the first century. And the residents, as we arrive in the city of Jerusalem, there's people moving and bustling around, but the city is on edge because they are consumed with the news that a rabbi named Jesus, who was publicly put to death, has come back from the grave. Everybody's talking about it. It's in the Jerusalem Gazette. The religious leaders are all upset about it. It's being brought up in the synagogues and the, and the rabbis and the teachers in the synagogues are saying, we're not going to talk about that. It's not true. It can't be true. He, he was blasphemer. He's dead. He, desired to, he, he deserved, deserved to die. But then somebody will raise a hand and say, but I, I heard, I heard that the religious leaders 
the Sanhedrin, some of them actually were involved in paying off the guards. And they bribed them to say that his disciples came and stole them away. Fake news. Fake news. It's all fake news. Didn't happen. Don't believe it. Are you sure? I mean, that, that's a pretty serious charge. Corruption in the Sanhedrin? Don't want to talk about it. Nothing to see here. Let's move on. Let's talk about something else. But you know, the problem is, sir, in, in, our, in our system, if we have two or three witnesses that say that something happened, they were witnesses to it, and they can testify to the fact that it actually did happen, and their stories match up, doesn't that, doesn't that mean that we're supposed to accept that as true? Well, yeah. Well, sir, teacher, there's 500 reputable people who have seen him alive. Get him out of here. Now, out. He's dead. You know, and and then there's all the stuff that's going on about a month and a half after this supposed resurrection, some really strange things took place during the Feast of Tabernacles. Thousands and tens of thousands of the Jews had gathered there, coming in for the Feast of the Tabernacles to set up their little booths and live in their booths for that time period, remembering the Israelites in the wilderness and how God provided for them. And the stories say that that in the midst of that time period, suddenly a whole bunch of Jesus followers came out of this building and they were all talking in all these different languages, but, but they didn't know those languages. And, and the people could, could hear the same person talking to three different people with three different languages and they could all understand him. And, and out of that, then one of those followers, actually the guy who, who denied him. You know, did you hear about that Peter guy? He denied him. And suddenly he stood up and started talking to us about what was happening and told us about this Jesus. And, you know, there were thousands of Jews that day who trusted Jesus. And the next day, thousands more and thousands more. I mean, there was something happening in Jerusalem as it spread through all these people in their, in their huts that they were living in and talking about the manna and talking about the Israelites and talking about how Jesus said He was the manna and how He was the water. And it was just spreading like wildfire in the city. And there's all kinds of new converts to this way that they're talking about. And we've heard that prominent priests and Pharisees have actually become believers. We've heard that there's been a whole bunch of priests who have just left the temple and they're no longer participating in the sacrifices because they've been, become followers of this Jesus. And Pharisees 
there's a huge amount of Pharisees who have left and started following Jesus. And then there's rumors that actually as this original group of people from the Feast of Tabernacle have gone back to their home cities all over the world, that they're beginning to talk about the Gospel. There's news trickling in that this, this thing they call the Gospel is, is starting to have an effect in those places. We heard rumors that one of the Sanhedrin actually said that these Jesus followers are turning the world upside down. I mean, we don't know what's happening, but this is nuts. There's been nothing like this. And then we hear this really big piece of news. And we hear that it's been confirmed by the Sanhedrin. Is that one of the up-and-coming rising stars, one of the Pharisees, one of the strictest adherents to the law, he was well-educated. He sat under one of the top five rabbis of the day. Rumors are that he had the whole testament memorized. This guy was was the guy for the future. He was so passionate about defending Judaism that he was arresting and killing these new followers of Jesus. But the rumor is he himself converted to this Christianity. And is personally out spreading their teachings throughout the Roman Empire. Pretty big stuff happening in those early few years. But now we need to get back in our time machine. We're going to go forward just a few years to the latter part of the 30s. 38, 39, we'll we'll just say 39 so we all get to the same place. We get there, we step out, and we start talking to this new Christian community and find out they've divided. They aren't what they used to be. There's division. You know, up to this point, all these Christian converts for Six years, maybe nine years, depending on what you believe. We should have found out for sure while we were there in our time machine. We should have said exactly what year did he die. We should have found that out, but I forgot. But up until this point, all the Christian converts have one major thing in common. They're all Jews. Every single one of them is a Jew. Six to nine years of gospel ministry. And not a single Gentile has come to know Christ. Because you can't be a Gentile and come to know Christ. It's against the rules. So the Jews have been becoming Christians. And if you're a Gentile, like maybe the Ethiopian eunuch, 
But you see, the Ethiopian eunuch was a proselyte. He was returning from Jerusalem. He had gone up there to worship and was coming back. Sure, he was an Ethiopian. Sure, he wasn't born a Jew. But he was a proselyte, which means he had been circumcised. Everybody else had either become circumcised to become a Jew to accept the gospel. How would you like that puppy? So Ben, because Ben sits in the front. Let's pick on Andrew today because Andrew's over here. I picked on Ben before. So Andrew's over here. So Andrew, I'm talking to Andrew and he's a Gentile and I'm a Jew and I'm sharing the gospel with him. And And I'm saying, you know what? All of the stuff we heard about, about that, about the past and what God has done was fulfilled in Jesus and, and trust Jesus, da-da-da-da-da. And Andrew says, you know, that makes so much sense to me. What do I need to do to be saved? <laughs> Wouldn't you love it if when they asked that question, what must we do to be saved? Well, first you've got to be circumcised. <laughs> yeah, really? Oh, okay. You know, this whole, what about, what about, we heard somebody say, believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and be baptized. What about that option? Hey, we weren't talking to you uncircumcised Gentiles. We were talking to the Jews. Unfortunately for you, you were born a Gentile. Should have had this done when you were a kid. But since you didn't, you sure you want to be a Christian? Hmm, can I pray about this? <laughs> One of those deals? But there's this monumental event that happens. That Peter guy, Peter, goes to a Gentile's house. He walks into a Gentile's house. And and doesn't say anything about circumcision. He just stands up and starts talking about Jesus. Jesus. And he doesn't even get done. And this guy named Cornelius believes. I mean, how rude is that? Peter went all that distance to give a really good sermon. And in the middle of his sermon, the guy says, I believe. Well, I didn't get to point three yet. Can we wait? No, I believe. And his whole household believed. That's nuts. They weren't even circumcised. And on top of that, Paul, Peter had the audacity to baptize them without requiring circumcision, and he left without requiring circumcision. There's no way those people can be believers. If you weren't saved out of the King James Bible, you cannot be a Christian. Oh, wait, that, I went way ahead in my time machine there. And the community's divided. We've got this big fight happening. So now we've got this one side that requires circumcision and believes that all the Sabbaths and the feasts And all of the Old Testament law is to be kept because that's what God requires of His people. 
And to be one of God's people, you've got to be a Jew. And the sign of God's people and the covenant of the Jews is circumcision. And on the other side is this group that is saying Jesus fulfilled the law. It's the gospel. You're righteous in the gospel. And the fight's going on. And the labels begin to fly. And over here we have the Judaizers. And over here we have whatever. Antinomians. The Judaizers, folks. The Judaizers. Those bad, bad people. Right? The Judaizers believed the Gospel. The Judaizers were probably believers. In fact, a council gets held. You ready to get back in our time machines? Zip forward. About ten years later, 49, probably 50 A.D., This whole thing that happened with Cornelius has been bubbling and boiling and has finally reached just a major blow up. And and the Judaizers come in and the apostles come in and some other brothers come in and they have this massive council called the Jerusalem Council. And the issue at hand is the question of whether a person must be circumcised to be saved. And the presentations are made and people are arguing back and forth. And in Acts 15, it says, some of the brothers, speaking of the Judaizers, who insisted on the circumcision and the keeping of the law. So they were false teachers as Paul identifies them. But these false teachers, many of them were believers. And in the midst of this Jerusalem council, as everything's happening, Peter stands up. Reconciliation has been fruitless. But Peter stands up and says, let me tell you what happened. And he tells the story and he, he talks about the sheet that comes down and the animals that are in it, all of them unclean. And God told him, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And I said to him, no, I have never eaten anything unclean. And, and the, it goes up and it comes back down and God says, Peter, rise up, kill and eat. And Peter says, no, Lord. He knows who's talking to him. I have never eaten anything unclean. Now, you know what? If Jesus is telling you, now I don't think this is normative, but, and I don't think it's going to happen today, but if Jesus is telling you, Rise up, kill, and eat. And every time you've gone against what Jesus says, you got yourself in a big heap of trouble. 
I think if I was Peter, it might be a good idea to say, hmm, I've never had shrimp, but I wonder what it tastes like. Maybe we should try that today. Bacon has always smelled really good. Maybe we should have some bacon, you know? And, and then a knock comes at the door. Peter says, my servants came up and said, this guy named Cornelius, a Gentile, wants to talk to me. He's been a person who has been, been pursuing God, but he's not a Jew. He's been studying God. But he wants to know. And Peter goes, hmm... Ah, that's interesting. I got this rise up, kill and eat thing going, and I got this Gentile wants me to talk to him. None of this is making any sense, but hey, got nothing else on the calendar today. Might as well go over there. So he goes over there to this Gentile's place, walks in, big violation. Starts to tell him the gospel. And if you read Peter's message to Cornelius, it's not the most, it's almost like a Jonah message, you know? Um, yeah, i got to talk to you about this, but I'm not real sure I should be. And, and he's partway through, as I said, he's partway through his sermon, and, and Cornelius believes. And, the, and his, his family believes. And here's the kicker. He says, And the Spirit came on them in the same way it came on us. And so I baptized them. And the members of the council go, wow, can't argue with that. I'm sure the Judaizers are saying, yeah, we sure can. We sure can. But the council says, that settles it. God did that. It's not up to us. It's up to God. So, so how are we going to resolve this? Well, the way we're going to resolve this then, the council decides... <clears throat> is they are going to send a letter to the churches at large informing them of the council's decision. And the council's decision is that no one is required to be circumcised to be able to hear and receive the gospel and to become one of the people of God. And they decide to send out two followers of Jesus to circulate this letter amongst the churches. And do you know who they chose? Paul and Barnabas. How political of a decision was that one? I mean, I love that decision. And maybe, maybe I'm just cynical. But the most strict former Pharisee is the guy we're going to have take the letter out about circumcision to all the churches. Well, it was smart. It was really a smart decision. A little bit political, though, I think. But it appears that Paul had already written a letter about the issue to at least one group of churches influenced by the Judaizers, and that was the church, the churches of Galatia. Galatia was located in a, uh, uh, north of the Mediterranean Sea. It's a province. Um, some of the churches in that province that Paul went to might be familiar to you. Lystra, Derby, those would be cities that he went to in that area. 
The influence of the Judaizers had been very strong and the situation in the churches was dire. So Paul begins his letter in a very direct way as he writes them. Some people believe that he wrote after the Jerusalem Council. It it honestly makes more sense logically that he would have written this letter before the Jerusalem Council. Because in a sense, once the Jerusalem Council made the decision and the letter was circulated from them, it would have already addressed everything that Paul is writing to them about. But I wouldn't quibble over that. But I think he wrote it ahead of the Jerusalem Council. But he brings his readers back to the core values that he communicated to them not so long ago. When he founded them, some people place that at anywhere from 10, 5 to 10 years is all it took for them to move away from the gospel. He doesn't craft a catchy mission statement. He simply states the facts. In verse 3 and 4, Grace and peace to you, grace to you and peace, from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave Himself for our sins to deliver us from the present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Extremely simple statement. Extremely direct statement. He's going to develop some of those ideas as he moves, well, all those ideas as he moves through the letter. But he brings them back to a very direct statement. It's not comprehensive. It isn't even a summary of beliefs. What he intended to accomplish here was to remind his readers that their acceptance with God and their standing as children of this God was because of God's will and not man's. It was God's plan, not the constructs of humans. It was secured in the work of Jesus on the cross and not the keeping of the law. And Paul's intent was to bring these people back to faith in Jesus' obedience and not their own. I want, I want you to keep in mind as we go through the book of Galatians, it's not written to the unbeliever. The book of Galatians is written to the believer about his standing and acceptance with God. Some people misunderstand the book and they think that what Paul is upset about is that people are going out and evangelizing unbelievers and telling them that in order to be saved, you have to keep the law. But that's not what Paul's writing about. Paul, and you have to get this straight, or you'll get really messed up in Galatians. Paul is writing to believers who are already trusting in Jesus' sacrifice for salvation. And he's saying, you've lost something. You left something. You're severing yourself from Christ. Because you've come to the conclusion that in order to maintain standing with God, in order to maintain 
acceptance with God, you have to keep the law. And in doing so, you're severing yourself from Christ and you're walking away from grace. As I said, Paul's intent was to bring these people back to faith in Jesus' obedience and not their own. As I was thinking about that, I thought about when we began our study in the book of Numbers. And I encouraged you, and I tried to keep it in my own mind, to be careful how we viewed that ancient people of God. I mentioned then it's very easy to become condescending and condemning and judgmental of their disobedience and stupidity. Remember that? It's very easy to fall into a trap with the book of Numbers of what is wrong with these people? They had all this stuff and yet they built a golden calf. They are standing at the base of a mountain hearing the voice of God seeing a mountain on fire and building a golden calf to worship. How do, you, how do you connect those two, you know? It's just like crazy. God provides for them over and over again. You don't care about us. We're nothing to you. You brought us out here to die in the wilderness. They lived in oppression and their babies were getting killed. I want to go back to I want to go back to Egypt. I need some leeks today, man. I haven't had a leak in who knows how long. And I am so sick of this stupid manna. Oh yeah, so let's go back and just watch our babies get killed again. For a leak. And it's so easy to move into this mindset of they were nuts. I think we can do the same thing with Galatians. It's really easy with Galatians to be starting to read this with these people and going, don't you get it? I mean, you're just, at least we're 2,000 years later if we get messed up. You're just a couple decades and you're getting messed up. And we can really easily begin to read the numbers or read this and think about it and learn about it and at least inwardly begin to thank God that we're not like other people, even these Galatians. But sadly... It's just as easy for us to do it as it was for these Galatians. Think about it. We're we're well-taught, gospel-centered Christians. Eric emphasized gospel-centeredness. I have tried to emphasize gospel-centeredness. I mean, our church is on the list of recommended churches for the Gospel Coalition, which exists to advance gospel-centeredness in churches. We're on their list. 
Your pastor is on the steering committee of the Gospel Coalition for Iowa. Wow. And we actually, our, our building hosts the monthly meeting for the Gospel Coalition. And we're on the nine marks registry. Whew, that's hard to get on to. I think they think Eric's still here. I'm not sure. But we're on that registry. And you know, we're aligned with the right wing, the correct wing of the Southern Baptist Churches. We stand for the gospel and doctrine. And not that wishy-washy, easy believism stuff that's out there, you know. That's us. We would never trade the gospel for a works-based system, right? But you know the statistics tell us that in America at least, that it's from Baptist ranks in particular that the Mormons are getting the most converts today. And who's more gospel-centered than the Baptist, right? I mean, we all know that. We do, we do baptism right. So therefore, we got to be right. Or maybe we could consider how quickly the prosperity gospel, a belief that God will give you good things if you obey Him, works, has permeated the Christian community in America? Well, praise God it hasn't happened here at Northbrook. Anybody around here ever have in your mind that if you want to be blessed financially, you should make sure you tithe? You know, that's the core of the prosperity gospel. I don't know if you knew that or not. But hey, the Bible says so. Mm, maybe. When was the last time you thought that something bad happened to you because you sinned? Or... Maybe you thought something good happened because, well, I did this for God. When was the last time you thought, God, this isn't fair? Because I have... I, it's particularly disappointing to me when people post things on Facebook or say it in a conversation about karma. Good for good and evil for evil particularly when it's Northbrook people. And yes, this happened. Karma's going to get him. Or karma did get him. The fact is that we talk a really good line about grace and trusting in Jesus alone for salvation in our churches and in our Bible studies, but we seem to have this suitcase of works that we carry around when it comes to acceptance with God. So, now that you are either getting very defensive and offended, or that you're feeling very guilty, I want to offer you some hope. Because a lot of what I just talked about is what I grew up in as well. I was asking Terry 
this last week. How many people are left at Northbrook that came out of a fundamentalistic background? And there's really very few of us. There used to be a larger contingency here, but, but most of them are gone. Mossmans, um, they were really bad. They thought I was bad. That's how bad they were. They thought I was bad. Um, we're, we're good friends now. But um, I was trying to think of who else the Bard is, maybe. Amy and Russ came out of that, I think. And uh, that might be it. I'm not sure. I grew up in that stuff. It was very front and center. I would say that our church that I grew up in was Judaizing church. Maybe not circumcision, but everything else. But the reality is, we're all touched by it in some way because our human nature wants to prove that we are good. That we are better. But there are others who don't match up enough. So therefore, there has to be a system that compares my good against my bad and the way God is just is that the ones who aren't good enough go to hell they're the bad ones and the ones who did enough good things are the good ones who go to heaven with him and we wouldn't say it quite that way but that's how we live we just aren't going to go to purgatory or hell we're just going to get a really bad whipping when we get there when all our sins are laid out and we're going to be so stinking embarrassed when everybody knows who we are really are but the letter to the Galatian churches offers a massive heaping of hope their problem is our problem and Paul inspired by the Holy Spirit powerfully unapologetically and directly goes after our law keeping our rule creating and points us back to the grace of God in the person and work of Jesus. Now, I've I got to ask you for something as we go through Galatians. Give me a little bit of trust as I teach you. I'm going to ask you to do something that I have never asked another group that I've taught or preached to. But I want to appeal to you on the basis of Paul's appeal that he often has. Look at my manner of life. Look at the manner of life of my family. Look at the manner of life of my marriage. Look at the manner of life of my daughters. And ask yourself if you think that John Yankee is a lawbreaker. Do you think that John Yankee is a person who is a libertarian who says you can live however you want to live because of the grace of God? You consider what I've taught you for five years and ask yourself, has he said to us, that it's okay to live however we want to because we're under grace? Or has he taught us that a follower of Jesus lives and pursues a way of life? And I want you to think through all of that. And I want you to ask yourself, 
whether or not you also think I'm a person who loves the gospel and preaches grace. And I want you, as I teach through this book, which is incredibly controversial, and as I say things that seem really out of the mainstream in some circles, is he a person who encourages people to go away from obedience to Christ, or is he a person, has his consistent message been, pursue obedience to Christ. And more importantly, I want to encourage you as I try to explain God's Word to you from Galatians. To ask Him, God, for eyes to see the truth, for ears to understand the truth, and for hearts to accept and believe the truth that is in Galatians for His glory and our good. I am not in any way asking you to blindly follow me. What I am asking you to do is set aside preconceived notions and let God speak for Himself through His Word. That's what I'm asking you to do. And with that, let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word. I thank You for this incredible letter to the Galatians. I pray that You will use it in our lives to help us to celebrate and love the Gospel of Jesus Christ more than we ever have before. To be able to see, maybe with new eyes, how amazing it is to be one of your children simply through the finished work of Christ on the cross. And Father, help us to understand what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus. Help us to understand the difference between the works that we can do of the flesh and what they look like and the work or the fruit of the Spirit in us and what that looks like. Help us to realize that if we walk away from grace and we try to do it on our own, all that we can produce is the works of the flesh. Nothing else. And help us to realize that what you are doing is something so much greater than we could ever do. But as we cooperate with the Spirit, as we walk in the Spirit, you are displayed in our lives. Help us to see the great work you've done in redemption. Help us to see the great work you're accomplishing in sanctification. We love you and praise you in your Son's name. Amen.